Coronavirus updates are happening fast, and one of the things this whole situation has brought to the forefront that didn't get a lot of attention before is sick leave policy for hourly workers, for contractors, for all kinds of people who can't just stay home without forfeiting a paycheck. Last night, Senate Democrats put forth an emergency bill for paid sick leave. The legislation would have guaranteed 14 days of paid leave for workers affected by the spread of coronavirus, but that legislation was blocked by Senate Republicans. I'm Gina Kaufman. Today's show looks at the ecosystem around sick leave in Kansas City. Call 816-235-2888. If the advice we're all getting, stay home if you're sick, feels unrealistic for you, whether that's because of your pay structure, your workplace culture, or something else. 816-235-2888. My first guest is Wade Conyers. Wade works at a local restaurant, which we won't be naming. And Wade, you've worked at lots of restaurants. So what you share with us today is not just about a particular place. Is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what exactly do you do at the restaurant where you work? Um, I'm the uh, sous chef, so sort of like second in charge uh, of the kitchen in the back of the house. Yeah. And you don't have paid sick leave? Uh, I do not, no. <laughs> so this obviously matters for every industry, but how does it feel in light of the coronavirus to be in the food business in particular right now? Um, I think it's really interesting because I think that the food industry is obviously going to be a quick way for uh, the coronavirus or any disease to spread around. Uh, I think it's uh, also just to add on to that is just the fact that most of the service industry works for an hourly wage. And as it is, uh, the idea of paid sick leave for someone on uh, that is working hourly is sort of an enigma. It's not even something that a lot of people really expect uh, or ever expect when they move into or like accept a job like that. I would guess, too, like if you're thinking about you've got a little tickle in your throat, are you going to call in sick? If you're anticipating that if this gets really bad, you might be staring down a long period of time without pay. Absolutely. And especially uh, for this, the nature of uh, of the hourly wages in uh, the food industry is it's usually low income. So it's not exactly like most of these people have a savings that so where they continue to pay their rent and pay their bills. Uh, I feel like it's a question of like, okay, am I going to go in sick or am I going to miss my rent or miss my bills or not be able to feed my child this month in some cases? So if you wake up tomorrow with a cough, one of the symptoms of coronavirus, what are the considerations that you're scrolling through in your mind as you make those calculations about what to do? Um, I mean, in my case, honestly, just... Uh, it's going to be just a matter of if I'm able to do my job and get the work done. I'm, uh, like a lot of people, very concerned about uh, the spread of the coronavirus right now and a lot of uh, different diseases uh, always. But uh, again, it's just a factor of like, am I able to keep a roof over my head? You know, missing a shift uh, could mean that you don't get the income you need to pay a certain bill. So for me personally, if I like wake up with a cough, I mean, I hate to say there's not much of an option. Like I'm going to try and get it done. I'll wash my hands more. I'll make sure that I'm not like coughing on food or anything like that. But this is a really common way that most of the people in the food industry uh, think. You recently had a situation where you really couldn't work. You broke your leg. Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, so I was just, uh, yeah, I was in a situation where I was on the highway and I got in a wreck and I got out to exchange information with the other person who hit me and then another car came and like hit my leg and broke my leg. Yeah. Uh, even after this happened, uh, 
you know, I was sent to the ER and my first thought is, oh my God, what am I going to do? I need to go to work. I originally did attempt <laughs> to go into work, uh, I think about five days after it happened. Uh, so I was like in there on my crutches and just realized that there was absolutely nothing I could yeah, do. Yeah, you like can't swiftly chop an onion on <laughs> yeah, crutches. Yeah, exactly. And this is a job where you're always on your feet. You know, I tried, oh, I could sit you down. Know, I just want to say like I have very limited experience working in the food industry, but I have done it. You, people don't necessarily realize you're doing all of the things that they do in their kitchen, of course, but you're doing them fast and at a high scale. You're not oh, like absolutely. leisurely chopping it. Oh, yeah. And my coworkers and all were like trying to be incredibly supportive it was it was very nice of just like oh you know just work at your own pace but it when it came down to it uh, there was really nothing i could do i was completely restrained i just i just recently got uh back to work still limping around a little bit but uh you know i'm getting the job done and then uh there's just this huge concern also where there's a lot of income that i did not get uh, the only thing that even allowed me to take the time off that i did was just cuz i happened to get my tax return. And so that's like helping me fund my bills. Uh, if I didn't, I mean, I know I have another coworker who also actually broke the same bone a couple months ago. She had a successful GoFundMe, uh, which is one option that's not necessarily available to everybody. Uh, again, I have another coworker who like broke their foot and just immediately had to start going back to work because they didn't see another option and say they're still feeling like the pain in that today from six months ago or something like that. My other memory from working in the food industry, and I'm curious whether this has changed in light of coronavirus, is that there just is a culture around like, you come into work. If you call in sick without like an emergency, that's just kind of not part of that culture. Absolutely. No. Uh Another thing that's, once again, these are all just uh, anecdotal stories, but we had a new person come in not that long ago, and I noticed that he had disappeared for uh, um, a while, and he came back and I said, hey, uh, what's up? Is everything okay? And he's like, oh, yeah, I just had to go throw up in the restroom really quick. And I said, oh, uh, so you're sick? And he's like, yeah. And I said, okay, you can, you can go home. And he was shocked uh he had never heard that before uh there are so many places where just the amount of staffing they have is not up to par or there's just like again this culture of push on through like you're gonna do it anyway which in the the food service industry specifically is a terrifying idea that has been you know, a problem long before any of these coronavirus fears. <laughs> well, Wade, hang on a minute. I want to turn now to someone who's been doing a lot of national reporting on this. Um, Christopher Ingram is with us from the Washington Post. Hi, Christopher. Hi. You have looked at lots of data. Is Wade's story consistent with the data? Absolutely. So if you look at the national data, roughly a quarter of American workers have no paid sick leave at all. And if you look at certain sectors like the service sector, the food industry, and then you look, as Wade said, at uh, part-time workers or hourly workers, um, the rates of paid sick leave are much, much lower. And that's really bad because we know that when you don't pay people to stay home sick, they go to work. The CDC has data showing that about 20% of food service workers have gone to work while sick with vomiting or diarrhea. So that's what we're looking at here. Restaurants are obviously just one example of an industry where this is relevant. Talk to me about the bigger picture. Sure. 
so uh, you know it's a uh, about a quarter of people don't have any paid sick leave and you know it, we have surveys you know that that ask people you know what do you do and you know the people people who don't have paid leave they tell us they go into work and uh, the CDC has also done research showing looking at past um, epidemics and pandemics like the H1N1 or the bird flu and what they found is that uh, our lack of paid sick leave the the, the lack of that safety net has uh, increased the magnitude of those epidemics. We're talking about millions upon millions of more people sick just because sick people are going to work. And keep in mind, when somebody who's sick, they go to work, they're, they're not just infecting their coworkers. Their coworkers get sick, they go home and they infect their family. So you're really looking at something, a, a workplace policy that affects the entire population. The situation isn't new. Coronavirus just makes it more acutely relevant to people who don't usually have to worry about their own sick leave most of the time. Explain what's been this situation for a while and what's particular about how this situation might affect people now that coronavirus is here. Yeah, well, the, you know, the problem with coronavirus is that it's so, it, it's it's new. We don't have defenses for it. We don't have a vaccine for it. And most troubling, you know, a lot of people that display, display mild or moderate or no symptoms at all. So it's just tearing through the population in a way that the influenza does not. And so, you know, the interesting thing, if you talk to public health experts, now, of course, public health experts have been unanimous for years saying that the United States needs better paid sick leave. And now, in particular, in the time of the coronavirus, they are really banging that drum really hard. These are the people who are often, you know, trying to minimize the, the, the fear around pandemics or public health scares. Those same folks now are the ones who are really ringing the alarm bells saying, look, if you want to take, tackle this, uh, this epidemic seriously, the first thing we need to do is to get sick people to stop going to work. And that's not going to happen unless there's some kind of safety net for those folks. In a recent article, you wrote about a 2017 study about how paid sick leave impacted influenza rates. Can you walk us through that article? Yeah, that was a really interesting article. So, you know, in the absence of federal action, which we, what we've seen in the past 10 years is cities and states taking the initiative on their own. And so now we have a lot of places where this is happening. We have San Francisco, D.C., a whole bunch of other cities, a number of states. And so what researchers can do now is compare those cities and states to other cities and states that don't have sick leave and see what happens. You know, when a flu during influenza season, uh, how do rates change when a city has paid sick leave? And they found that they change a lot. Um, when a city implements um, paid sick leave, they found that influenza rates plummet by up to 40% relative to similar cities. I mean, I want so, to jump in and say, according to the Economic Policy Institute, 18 states have laws barring local governments from enacting paid sick leave policies, and that those states include Missouri and Kansas. Yeah, and so that's the flip side of this coin, where you have, you know, as many states and cities take action, you have a number of more conservative legislatures taking action of their own, saying, no, you can't do this. You can't do your own paid leave policy, which is about probably the most harmful thing you can do, because saying, okay, we, we can't have a blanket policy for the entire nation because there are different realities on the ground in different places, that's one thing. But actually barring those localities from setting their own policies, that's, that goes beyond just, you know, a negligence and, and not doing anything to make it better, and you're actually making things worse worse actively through policy, which is the opposite of what policy is supposed to do. In that context, who steps in and changes this using what mechanism? 
Um, well, that depends. So, uh, you know, at the national level, Congress could pass a national paid sick leave bill um, that would, I believe, that would um, supersede any, um, you know, state efforts to, to block paid sick leave. Um, again, we don't see any, uh, at this moment, not a lot of uh, evidence that that's going to happen. The House, Democrats in the House and Senate have been pr- uh, putting forth po- proposals as recently as last night, and Republican leaders Mitch McConnell just recently shot down the latest one saying it's an ideological wish Oh, we just lost our guest. We will get right back to him and resume that discussion. I'll take a caller now. Uh, we'll be right back with Dave Ingram from, or Christopher Ingram from the Washington Post. Let's talk to Dave Helling, who is calling us. He's an editorial writer for the Kansas City Star, and he wrote an article about his own story pertaining to this just yesterday. Hi, Dave. Hi, great to be with you today. Thank you for joining us. Will you share the story that you, your personal story that you told in the Kansas City Star yesterday? Yeah. Um, in essence, I don't want to emphasize my own tale too much because this is obviously a, an extraordinarily important global story about the coronavirus. So, But what uh, my story is that in the 1990s, I was sick and uh, for a complicated series of reasons did not call in sick to the newsroom where I worked. Uh, until the, my sore throat got so overwhelming that I had to go to a doctor, found out I had strep throat, took antibiotics, and then about six months later developed a pretty serious case of psoriasis and, and psoriatic arthritis, which at least some doctors believe is related to the untreated strep throat. And I've had to have treatments for psoriasis now my, for the rest of my life. I still take it today. And I guess I was using that story to illustrate the, that Paid sick leave is important, extraordinarily important, and all the issues we're talking about, but there's a cultural dimension to it, too, which is a lot of employees in America refuse to call in sick when they're sick, and that is a problem, and that was a problem that I had 25 years ago and will be a huge problem if that continues during this pandemic. I mean, you were talking about that you felt you were indispensable was yes. that about yourself or was that about maybe like your coworkers, your teammates, how people were you felt relying on you? Yes. Um, well, it was much more a culture and you, you've worked in newsrooms, which may be unique in some ways, although I must say I got the emails from people who work in hospitals and other places and they feel the same pressure. And the idea is people who call in sick are somehow malingerers or fakers or, you know, they're out playing golf and they're not really sick. And that attitude is extraordinarily prevalent in some workplaces. And it's, you know, silly. And it, in my case, it was extraordinarily dangerous and expensive. And in other cases, it may be that too. And so as we work through the coronavirus, what I was trying to say in my column is, We've got to make it so that it's easy to call in sick and that it is not costly, you know, that those, you know, people still get paid, which I think Christopher was talking about. And then you shouldn't feel guilty about it. You shouldn't feel as if there's some pressure from either your bosses or your coworkers that you're somehow cheating the system if you call in sick. That will be a disaster if and when this virus continues to grow. Would you say, I mean, when you talk about the culture, one of the details in your article, which really did take me back, is awards in school for not missing a day. Yes. That we're yeah, really trained into this is, mindset. 
Yeah, we're saying to kids, boy, if you never call, you come, you know, if you always go to school and you're never sick, that's somehow something to be rewarded. And while we want kids to go to school, we also want them to stay home when they're ill and and not spread their illnesses to their schoolmates or to their teachers or other workers. And instead, we sort of frown on that. And that that culture, in my view, which is why I wrote the column, is something we really need to overcome. Now, I think you know, the government can help overcome that by being much more aggressive on paid sick leave and and extended sick leave and and time off for, you know, to take care of children who are ill. I mean, the system we have set up is just very haphazard and insufficient to the moment. But, and so I sort of believe if you can change that, then you can start changing attitudes. But, you know, in my column, I pointed out that in 2017, I think, according to one study, half of all employees over the age of 61 took not a single work day that, or a sick day that year. I mean, not one. And that, you know. Yeah, your line there was, trust yes, us, trust Ill. me, we're not that healthy. <laughs> yes, yes, we're not. And and there is this idea, well, it's just a sniffle I can go in. Well, it's just a little bit of a sneeze I can go in. Well, I'm only, you know, I'm at a 100-degree temperature. No one's going to notice. And, and I'm, you know, focused a little bit on that far beyond coronavirus because the regular flu has been a bit of an issue, as you know, this winter, and colds and infections. Okay. Uh, it sounds like we lost Dave Helling, perhaps. Um, I'm not sure, but... He has made a good point, and I'm going to go back to Christopher. And tell them I'm sick, and I, I just we got to get over that, or, or this this coronavirus epidemic in this country will just get out of control in a big hurry. Dave Helling, thank you so much for calling in today. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Good luck. Thank you. Um, you we will be rejoining Christopher Ingram with the Washington Post in just a moment, but Wade. We talked a little bit about the cultural piece of this in your circumstance, too. Yeah. The lack of paid sick leave is one piece. There is a culture that encourages showing up no matter what. You have both of those circumstances. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think I thought that was a really interesting point that brought up about uh, getting awards in school for uh, never showing up uh, or for always showing up and never taking days off. Uh, I believe that does uh, carry over a little bit into uh, the workplace. Um, and yeah, I find that especially also in, uh, in the restaurant energy, uh, industry that a lot of people just take a lot of pride in their work. Just, uh, they want to be able to do it no matter what, nothing can hold them back or anything like that. Uh, which is kind of a unfortunate short-sighted irony that in turn they could be infecting this work that they are so proud of that they, uh, that they are like in turn, uh, perhaps harming the people that they're serving, that they're trying to take this pride in serving. <laughs> yeah. I want to return to Christopher Ingram with the Washington Post. I'm sorry that our call dropped earlier, Christopher. That's okay. You know, um, I want you to finish what you were saying. As we dropped off, you had just said, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So can you like, so kind of reset that up and then pick up where you yeah. left off? 
That kind of says it all, doesn't it? So, like, that's where we are at the federal level right now, right? Like, Democrats are, they proposed a number of sick leave bills, and the most recent one that they just put together last night is being, is getting shot down by uh, Senate Republicans. As we speak, they're saying it's an ideological wish list, and these, um, you know, these things aren't tenable. And it's, you know, it really... I mean, the argument, uh, as I understand it, is that there's no federal funding for it. Yeah, I, it's, uh, it's it's still unclear. Like very early days with the with these conversations, but the bill is pretty straightforward. It would provide you know uh, paid sick leave. It would provide universal coverage for testing, um, um, and uh, you know these these are very basic things that we see every other country that's dealing with this virus. They are doing these things, and for us, that's still an ideological bridge too far for uh, Republicans in government. So I don't know where we go from here. The, the negotiations are ongoing. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a real, uh, um, you know, as the pre- previous speakers are saying, there is a real culture of work profits before everything in this country. And that mostly comes from the top. A lot of it comes from policymakers, but a lot of it comes from us, too, as individuals. There are so many of us who have access to paid sick leave, and we go into the office sick anyway. And that has to change, too. There's a real cultural problem. For so many years, we've had it so easy that we've been able to prioritize profits above everything else. We've been able to think of that as the greatest public good. And what this epidemic is reminding us is, is that that's a very narrow way to conceive of the public good, and it might not be sufficient in a time like this. You know, it's easy to shake a finger at an employer who doesn't provide sick leave. Can you talk about this from an employer's standpoint? Because, you know, the, the absence of a rule about sick leave doesn't mean you can't just choose to provide it. However, there's, I'm assuming, some factors that contribute to the, the fact that a lot of employers don't just provide it. Yeah, well, you know, I think when you look at, when you talk to company, uh, folks like the Chamber of Commerce and these you know, individual businesses and business groups that oppose these measures, they're really worried about costs. They say that small businesses can't absorb these costs. They can't absorb the cost of paying a worker to stay home sick. And that's partly because, like, that cost is really salient. Uh, if you're an employer, you know exactly what that cost is. But, again, you have to look at the broader picture. And what the studies by CDC and public health experts have shown is that it is much more expensive expensive for us to not have paid sick days than it is to have it. The CDC did a study where they calculated that we're costing employers about one to two billion dollars a year simply by not mandating paid sick days and letting sick people go to work. So long run, we are just throwing money away. We are much less healthy country than we need to be because we are so focused on these short-term costs. Wade, you know, you choose to work for independent Kansas City restaurants, small businesses, and you choose that despite the fact that some chains do offer benefits packages. We just saw Olive Garden extend paid sick leave to 170,000 hourly workers in light of coronavirus. Talk to me about what that choice is about for you, because I have to assume that built into that choice is some compassion for the employer who does not provide you paid sick leave. Uh, You could say that. Uh, Compassion might be slight a slightly strong word but okay. I, I understand no i just have i, I have worked at uh, more corporate places and there's just a lot of bureaucracy i don't really appreciate not having a face to uh who is like in charge of all these things uh and also i find that like if you have say a problem or all of your coworkers have a problem uh that presenting that to a large corporation is going to be much more difficult uh for example, I, what I think would be really interesting to see in small businesses uh, around Kansas City or around anywhere is kind of in light of the lack of 
uh, government intervention on getting paid sick leave would be to uh, perhaps discuss the issues with your fellow coworkers and perhaps as a group present the idea uh, to your employer that uh, maybe paid sick leave would be the best for us and you and everybody that we serve. Christopher Ingram, do you see a lot of this going on throughout the country? You see some more of it. Um, it you know, it's, it's really hard to flex that employee muscle in the absence of something like a union, which can provide a counterbalance against the strength of an employer. And, you know, union membership has just tanked in the past 40 years, so that's part of it. But individual employees, um, they do have power, and particularly in instances like this. And, yes, absolutely, if this is something that is important to you, you should tell your employer, employer and you should tell your legislators um, that this is something that matters to you, especially at a time like this when you when we're worried about, you know, pandemic exposure across the population. So, but, you know, it's, it's limited, again, without that kind of uh, union muscle that used to be prevalent in the United States and which isn't anymore. Christopher Ingram of The Washington Post, thank you. Thanks for having me. Wade Conyers, Kansas City restaurant worker, sous chef at a restaurant that shall remain nameless. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. KCUR has a blog where you can get coronavirus updates and information that are relevant to our community. You can find it at kcur.org. And we will get back to COVID-19 on Up to Date. I'm Gina Kaufman. Central Standard will be back with a little change of pace. People's History of Kansas City. I'm Gina Kaufman. This is KCUR Central Standard. We'll get back to the news of the day here on KCUR. We'll have more COVID-19 updates on Up to Date. But now let's go to the latest episode of The People's History of Kansas City, hosted by Suzanne Hogan. This time, the podcast tells the story of a of booze in Kansas, or actually this one guy who changed the story of booze in Kansas. He was just kind of a cowboy who did things his way. I wanted them to know what the law was and tell them that they need to obey the law. And sure enough, the trunk popped open and out comes this guy in a suit and a hat. When my friend and colleague Matthew Long Middleton first talked to me about doing a story about a hot-headed Kansas cop, I had my doubts. But when I learned that this guy's crazy antics are actually the reason I can drink a cocktail in Kansas today, my attitude changed. Kansas has historically been a weird place when it comes to alcohol. It's a state that had a strong temperance history, with folks like Carrie Nation, a Kansas woman who was known for attacking drinking establishments with a hatchet in the early 1900s. Kansas's drinking laws over the years have been contradictory and unclear. For a long time, you couldn't buy liquor by the drink in Kansas unless you belonged to a dining club. My parents also remember the 60s, the days when 18-year-olds would drive to Kansas to get booze because you had to be 21 in Missouri. But the beer in Kansas was 3.2 beer up until just recently. When it comes to booze in Kansas, it's been a state that's been slow to change. But the person who helped change the laws was actually the person who enforced the drinking laws the most. And he was a guy that used some pretty unconventional and questionable tactics. Matthew Long Middleton is a producer at KCUR 89.3, and he brings us this story. So when I first heard some of these stories, honestly, they sounded like folk legends. Some of them, I was like, come on. I was having dinner with my colleague, Jim McLean. He's been a reporter in Kansas for, uh, well, a while. 
And you might recognize him from another KCUR podcast, My Fellow Kansans. He's telling me old stories about Kansas, and he starts talking about this guy. He wasn't very big, but he was in good shape, and he, he pretty much looked like he was ready to pounce at any time. He would charge into dangerous situations and handle them himself and got into gunfights and all kinds of physical altercations. There were more stories of shootouts on buses, drug busts, fistfights, death threats. But this wasn't the Wild West days of Kansas. It was the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And this guy, Bern Miller, wasn't the criminal. He was the lawman. Eventually, he would become the attorney general of Kansas and even ran for governor. He was just kind of a cowboy who did things his way. The narrative of the state of Kansas, where you had these marshals and these sheriffs of these Wild West communities that would take matters in hand and clean up the town, right? Well, there was a certain amount of that to Vern Miller. His signature move during busts throughout his career was he'd pop out of trunks. He'd hide in the trunk of a car, and when the signal was given, he'd pop out like a haunted house prop and arrest people. As I started digging around about Vern Miller, I quickly realized he was a polarizing guy. I think Vern Miller stands today as one of the greatest public figures in Kansas history. He was like a legal pit bull. He was the most active attorney general we've ever had. And the press followed him. He was news. And he was news that some people hated. When I asked about him on some Facebook groups, a guy named Mike Blau wrote, he was the worst of the worthless. He wrote that in all caps, by the way. Tim Murphy, he was terrible. Didn't that nut try to arrest plane passengers for drinking over Kansas or keep planes from serving alcohol over Kansas or some nutty crap like that? Chris Craig, Byrne truly was a P.O.S. in many ways. Byrne lived the rag-to-riches American dream. He was from the poorest part of Wichita there was, Hoover's Orchard. It was notorious because of uh, what we could see from the outside was uh, what appeared to be cardboard shacks. Mike Danford grew up in Wichita and wrote a biography about Vern Miller. As a child, Vern lived on 10 acres. His dad worked in downtown Wichita. They had a few cows, and Vern also worked at a nearby dairy in the pre-dawn hours. He was a literal cowboy, and he would ride his pet donkey standing on its back. When I started this research online, people speculated that Vern was dead, but he's not. He's 91 years old now, and I tracked him down through Mike Danford and Vern's children. He now lives outside of Phoenix, so I called him up. Hi, Vern, can you hear me? Oh, hear you well, huh? Vern's memory is still spot on, and he could tell me about his early years, how he became one of the toughest guys in town. There was a lot of scrapping going on. Everybody scrapped at that age. And back in those days, yeah, you know, boxing without gloves sometimes. He joined the army when conflict broke out in Korea in the 1950s. And when he was discharged, he returned to Wichita, jobless. A cryptic ad in the paper caught his eye because he knew he met one of the qualifications, ability to drive a motorcycle. So he basically showed up and learned there that the job was as a road patrolman with the sheriff's office. Vern showed he could drive a motorcycle and started work that same day. And it turns out Vern really liked being in law enforcement. He was passionate about his work, but he also brought his scrapping spirit to his work. As a traffic cop, there's a story of Vern after a high-speed chase whipping the man in the face and pulling the suspect through the car window. 
Remember, this was a time before body cameras and cell phone videos when police tactics were not always questioned. And Vern didn't shy away from violence. One night, Vern got into a fistfight with his boss, the sheriff, in his boss's own home. Yeah, so Vern lost his job in the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office after that. But several years later, in 1964, Vern ran for sheriff in Sedgwick County and won. At the time, Sedgwick was Kansas's most populous county. It included the city of Wichita. As sheriff, he was going all over the county, busting people for infractions big and small. He busted gambling rings of all kinds, even telling churches they had to suspend their cash bingo games. A lot of old ladies in down didn't like that. You know, they like to play bingo. People would claim that Vern even raided churches, but he denies that ever happening. He especially enforced Kansas's unique drinking laws, which at the time prohibited people from purchasing liquor by the drink. And he says what always motivated him was a commitment to the law. Kansas so long hadn't had any laws enforced along those areas. I wanted them to know what the law was and tell them that they needed to obey the law. And if they didn't, then uh, there'd be trouble about it. Vern's friends and family also say the same. In fact, it may be what sets him apart from your run-of-the-mill moralizer, according to his friend and former campaign advisor, John Frieden. Of all the years I have known him, I don't think I've ever had a discussion with him on the evils of cocktails or drinking. But I've had plenty of discussions with him on, does this violate the law? And if it does, we have to enforce it. And it wasn't like Vern was against drinking personally. He would drink socially. Vern didn't just philosophize about law. The quality that defined him was his courage in enforcing it. It was his greatest strength and weakness. Like back in the summer of 1968 in Missouri. An old farmer was handcuffed to a chair in his home, shot three times in the head, and robbed. The two suspects fled in the victim's car, abandoning it at a bus stop in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Local authorities there began calling stops along the various routes, asking sheriffs if they'd stop buses. One bus was going through Wichita in Sedgwick County, where Vern was sheriff. He jumped at the opportunity. He knew nothing about the suspects. He didn't know their names or even what they looked like. But he pulled over a Continental Trailways bus at 12.26 a.m. And according to Vern's son, Marty Miller. He and another guy get on the bus, a detective, and uh, they have their white shirts on. To not give away that they were cops, Vern led his partner down the narrow aisle, just looking for someone suspicious. He spots one man towards the back of the bus and says, Son, let me see your ID. Well, that's when the guy pulled up a pistol. And so my dad jumped on the guy and um, started wrestling with the pistol. And uh, the detective that was next to him... Vern's partner had shot the man right in the chest. But then... And the other guy sitting across the seat with a gal, they had a rifle, but they couldn't get it up because the seats were so close. So then the fight ended up over there, and they got them subdued. The man who initially pulled his gun died, and the other suspect went to prison for that murder in Missouri. The crowded bus gunfight made headlines, and while some Kansans admired his courage and brass style, others considered it reckless arrogance. It was just this spirit that almost started a mini-state civil war in Kansas in 1967, and it happened like this. 
Byrne was giving public testimony on some other issue entirely. But during it, he essentially called Leavenworth County lawless. Leavenworth, by the way, is over 190 miles away from Sedgwick County. The lead prosecutor in Leavenworth didn't like being publicly shamed. And a few days later, while Vern is directing traffic in Wichita, a Leavenworth County cop shows up. And I says, uh, what are you doing? He says, Vern, I got a spin for you. And I says, what for? And he says, for an inquisition. And he's going to say you were lying and you're going to get charged with perjury. And I says, you got to be kidding me. And he says, no. He says, you better get your lawyer and come up there because this guy's mean. So Vern gets a friend of his, a former FBI agent and lawyer, Ernie, to come up with him to be his counsel during his sworn testimony. They get to the Leavenworth courthouse and the attorney invites them into his office. But Vern isn't going to step into the trap. He says he's not going in without his lawyer, Ernie. They have this big back and forth. Finally, the Leavenworth prosecutor says... Then you're both under arrest. So he says to the two officers, arrest him and put him in jail. By then, things got a little hot, and I was a little hot, and I said, first one of you guys gets out of the chair, I'm going to kill. Don't make a mistake. Apparently, nobody wanted to kill or be killed. So Vern and his lawyer, Ernie, storm out of the courthouse. Ernie says they have to go to the attorney general and tell him what's going down. They drive to Topeka to tell the AG. And at the end of that meeting, Ernie and Vern are so incensed, they tell the AG, we'll come back and serve the subpoena. But when we do, it will be with 30 armed Sedgwick County deputies. The attorney general said, oh, no, we can't have a big fight like that going on in Kansas. So Vern and Ernie drive back down to Wichita. And when they get off the turnpike, they're handed a message. And it says, do not return to Leavenworth. Case dismissed. The attorney general had pulled some strings to defuse the situation between the two counties. No, I felt bad. But let me, let me tell you, I'm in a bind. At that time in Kansas, it was not against the law to resist an unlawful arrest. He's right. In fact, because of these events, the Kansas legislature passed a law making it illegal to resist an unlawful arrest. It became known as Miller's Law, named after Vern Miller. Right or wrong, these two incidents and others got Vern attention outside of Wichita and Sedgwick County. And while Vern certainly had his detractors, he was popular as a lawman. Remember, the 60s were a turbulent time in the U.S., we were in the midst of a protracted conflict in Vietnam. At home, there was a bitter struggle for racial equality, and counterculture hippies were rejecting social conventions. And amid all of this, Vern Miller was dependable, maybe to a fault, in what seemed like an upended and undependable world. He was also dependable to turn out Democratic votes in populous Sedgwick County. Or at least that's what Democratic Governor Bob Docking was counting on when he came to Vern in 1969, asking him to run for attorney general. Vern was reluctant. No Democrat in Kansas had held the attorney general's office in 80 years. The governor and Vern agreed it was unlikely Vern would win. Plus, Vern had been planning to go into private practice after leaving the sheriff's office. He had earned his law degree by commuting, sometimes by a friend's private plane to and from Oklahoma. And I told him, I, you know, I don't know nothing about being an attorney general. But eventually... Uh, they took me into running. And he and Bob Docking went on to win. Suddenly, this tenacious, pugnacious sheriff was the top cop in Kansas. 
he brought his mobile home up from Wichita to his new base in Topeka. And with it, he brought every part of himself to the job. Democratic campaigner John Frieden remembers Vern telling his staff what he expected of them. You never forget that you represent the people of the state of Kansas. And when you're writing your opinions and when you're making your decisions, you make them based upon what the law is, and you do it honestly and let the chips fall where they may. Traditionally, the job of attorney general is treated as a management job. You make sure the laws of the state are enforced through memos and decisions about where to deploy investigative and prosecutorial resources across the state. But according to John Frieden, Vern saw it slightly differently. The attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer, and he was hands-on. Boy, was he. During his campaign for AG, he pledged to, quote, land in the middle of the drug-ridden hippie commune at Lawrence with both feet. Within the first weeks of being on the job, he not only directed but also personally executed raids in Lawrence and at the University of Kansas. Susan Hudgens, who now lives outside of Topeka, says she witnessed one of those raids when she was a high schooler who had cruised into Lawrence with her friends. They found themselves hanging out near one of the dorms. We were enjoying one of those crisp, crunchy, wonderful fall evenings. We were basically hanging out there talking and counting money amongst us to see if we could go to the pool hall or somewhere else. Then a number of cars pulled up. And sure enough, the trunk popped open, and out comes this guy in a suit and a hat. It was Vern Miller. He and his men converged on the buildings. And as they start going in, lights start going on. You know, these are high-rise buildings. And lights start going on from the bottom to the top. And we can see stuff flying out the window. With all the cops inside, Susan and her friends saw an opportunity. We just uh, grabbed a trash bag and went over to the bushes around the dorms and started looking for what we could find. It was like Halloween and the Easter Bunny, quite a bunch of uh, marijuana and Ziploc bags and various paraphernalia items, mostly small things. We picked it up and made off with it before anybody noticed. I didn't ask what happened next, but I'll leave that to your imagination. These raids left a mark on some people. It was weird. It was kind of a you never knew where he might pop up. And it was more of an urban legend for us. Watch out, it could be Vern in that trunk. He acted more like the FBI guys chasing Bonnie and Clyde than a bureaucrat passing papers and writing reports. And that impression stuck. And it was this kind of brash public enforcement that upset then-Kansas Speaker of the House Calvin Strollrig. The day after the KU raid, Calvin marches into the AG's office as Vern's son Marty remembers the story. Never sits down, starts putting his finger in my dad's nose, starts threatening him about the next time he does a raid, he has to tell the legislature... And he wanted to know where the money came from to do such a thing, in which it didn't cost the state one dime. And my dad goes, you know, buddy, I don't know who you are, but I'm going to kick your you-know-what. Chased the guy out of his office and chased him down the hallway. And so when they got to the stairs, the dad turned around and went back to his office. And uh, it wasn't before long, the governor called dad. He says, do you know 
who you just chased out of your office? And Dad says, no, I don't even know who the guy was. He was being very rude and threatening me, and I'm not going to take that. I heard from two other sources that Vern actually punched the Speaker of the House. When I asked Vern about punching an elected official, he says, No, no, I don't remember anything like that. We never had any physical confrontation. Vern remained dogged, continuing his very public and active enforcement. As he sought and wrote to all the district attorneys of Kansas, nothing breeds disrespect for the law like a double standard. Which brings us to the story that probably brought Vern and the whole state of Kansas the most notoriety of all. Greyhound and Trailways bus lines called Vern's office, inquiring if they could serve liquor on their buses through Kansas. In the early 1970s in Kansas, it was illegal to sell liquor by the drink unless you belonged to a private club, which required you to pay a club membership fee to a restaurant. That was the law. And Vern told them, with these requirements, I don't see how you could do it. And they replied, well, Amtrak is doing it. Vern had found a double standard. He called a meeting and his colleagues goaded him. What about Amtrak? Is that too big for you? And I said, no, I don't think so. So I wrote the people in charge of Amtrak. Vern's son, Marty, says, Lawyers in York says, you can't touch us. We're a federal entity. Dad sits down with the, with the lawyers in the attorney general's office, and they go, well, Vern, I, I don't know what we're going to do, you know. And what Dad says, I know what we're going to do. We're going to put some agents on the train in Kansas City. When they get off at Newton, if they've uh, been drinking, we're going we're gonna to raid the train. I put two KBI officers on the train in Kansas City, Missouri. It's after 10 p.m. in Newton, Kansas. The stop is supposed to take just a minute, but Vern is waiting. As the train is letting passengers off and on, his officers board and begin taking all the liquor. So while we're carrying a whiskey off, the conductor comes back, and he's really mad, and he fuming, and he says, get off this train right now. He says, what are you doing? And I said, we're taking your whiskey. And he said, I said, get off this train right now. And uh, I said, nah, it's not going to happen, fella. And he said, it is. If I have to throw you off. So I said, well, you better get started doing that because I've got these officers here to help me. So they latched on to him. And I said, put him in jail. They put him in jail. And the train couldn't leave without a conductor. So the train set all night there in Newton, Kansas, a little podunk town. It would take a day for a new conductor to fly down from Chicago. And meanwhile, Amtrak lawyers file an injunction, which gets promptly thrown out of U.S. District Court. Amtrak appeals this ruling to the Supreme Court. But it's kind of clear in the Constitution. The states regulate alcohol delivered to or used in their state. So Fern won. And the consequences of this ruling didn't stop there. After our first raid there... I got a call from the lawyers in the airlines, and they said, yeah, General, what are you going to do about the airplanes? And I said, well, fellas, I believe you're under the same law, and I believe you're subject to it, so if you stop, I won't be raiding a plane. So they said, well, it stopped. So they stopped serving liquor over Kansas for a couple of years. Well, all this shone an uncomfortable spotlight on Kansas. There were late-night talk show jokes about it, and people to this day still circulate the untrue legend that Vern and his KBI agents also raided planes. It would take over a decade, 
But eventually, the people of Kansas amended their own constitution to allow liquor sales by the drink. Vern's son, Marty, feels confident that if anybody's thankful for liquor by the drink, they need to thank my dad. That may or may not have been what Vern had in mind. But many people's lives were affected by his strict enforcement of Kansas law, whether it was a delayed journey on Amtrak or years in prison for marijuana possession. Vern ran for re-election as attorney general in 1972 and won every single county in Kansas. And two years later, when Governor Bob Docking decided to run for U.S. Senate, the Democratic Party was looking for someone to continue their hold on the governor's office and called on Vern. And as John Frieden remembers, The pressure was just enormous. I mean, there wasn't a day that there weren't people in his office saying, you got to run for governor. You know you can win. There was a poll run right before he ran for governor. In that particular poll, he had 85% of the support of the people of Kansas. I have never seen a poll that favorable to a candidate. But at the same time. I never heard Vern say, I really want to be governor. Uh, He may have thought that, but I never heard him say that. The race would be close, really close. Vern lost to Robert Bennett by less than half a percentage point, just 3,677 votes. A number of those lost votes were in Douglas County, where the University of Kansas is. Years of making a public example out of the drug-ridden hippie commune had maybe been too much. Vern's campaigner, John Frieden, And I think anybody that looks back at that, those times, the laws that he enforced that the people kind of were uncomfortable with, they changed the laws. And we came back into the 20th century. Vern spent the rest of his working days practicing law in Wichita and eventually retired to Phoenix. He's been honored by the Kansas Bar Association, but his story is really complicated. His approach to law enforcement would get more scrutiny today as police brutality and hardline approaches to law enforcement have become major issues. Vern was courageous and tough as nails. He was ready to escalate a situation of force at the drop of a dime. And in the end, many of his efforts were over infractions that ultimately would become legal. His story is an unconventional one, to say the least. But there's no denying that this fanatical, renegade lawman made Kansas what it is today. That was Matthew Long Middleton telling the story of Vern Miller on the People's History of Kansas City. That's a new podcast at KCUR that's made in partnership with the Mid-Continent Public Library. KCUR's Suzanne Hogan is the host and producer of that podcast. And that's a wrap for today's show on KCUR Central Standard. If you missed our discussion of sick leave in light of coronavirus, you can give it a listen later today at kcur.org slash central standard. That's kcur.org slash central standard. And talk to us about it on Twitter. We want to know what your pay structure will mean for you if you develop symptoms of the new virus or if your workplace were to temporarily shut down for public health reasons. We're at KCUR 
R-E-S-T-A-U-R-C-S-T. Tomorrow is a food show. We'll do our quarterly update on restaurant news, openings, closings, maybe delivery options. We'll also talk about great places to get lunch. Tune in tomorrow at 10 for that. KCUR's Central Standard is produced by Melody Rowell, Mackenzie Martin, Michelle Tyreen Johnson and Noah Taborda. I'm Gina Kaufman. Up to date is next. Steve Kraske will be talking with KCUR's health reporter for COVID-19 updates in just a minute. Stay tuned.